0: Hello, this is Charlotte Leslie. I'm the director of CMEC, the Conservative Middle East Council. October the 7th, 2023. It's a day that will live in infamy. A shock terror attack by Hamas on Israel led to the brutal murder of perhaps as many as 1,400 Israelis, mainly civilians, men, women, and children. These are the sorts of atrocities many Jews felt Israel actually provided a sanctuary from. These shocking events have been followed by Israel's assault on Gaza against Hamas that has led to the deaths of hundreds more civilians, perhaps as many as 3,000 are dead, including hundreds of children. Aid workers there have described conditions as catastrophic. So after more than a week of tragedy and conflict, we thought it was time to hear from someone on the ground in Israel, Tom Helm the Jerusalem correspondent for the National Newspaper, based in Abu Dhabi, and someone who has worked for CMEC. Tom, thank you very, very much for sparing the time from where you are in Jerusalem, from what must have been an extremely busy time for you. How have you been?
1: Well, thank you, Charlotte. Well, I've been very busy and running on adrenaline, and that's still going for now. Let's see how long it lasts.
0: So... You're the Jerusalem correspondent for the National, and you have been for a few months now, is that right?
1: Yeah, about eight or nine months.
0: And I mean, you have witnessed, I guess, things escalating and escalating, and the various warnings like we've all heard from surrounding states saying this is becoming unsustainable. What have you seen in the build up to this horrific event on the 7th of October?
1: Well, the answer is not very much as directly relates to Hamas, the the main surprise, I mean, obviously, there were many. But as a journalist that covered both Palestinian territories and Israel, the main security concern, at least from what the IDF was briefing to journalists, seemed to be different arenas, particularly the West Bank, and also the northern border with Lebanon. There was a sense that Gaza was being managed. And A few almost benevolent Israeli policies were often cited as a key reason behind the relative stability of the Strip, most notably Israel's permission uh, to 17,000 Gazans roughly to allow to come and work in Israel on a daily basis, uh, which was a lifeline for Hamas, which which has struggled to create a a vibrant economy that, that can feed its already impoverished people. So the answer really is not very much. the The threat posed by Gaza was a, an entirely manageable one from the Israeli perspective. It wasn't Hamas; it was Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a smaller organization with less sophisticated rockets and, crucially, no political control in the Strip. So it had far less to lose than Hamas, which which has direct responsibility for the people of Gaza. So we would. Just very, very surprised.
0: So there's a couple of things that arise from that. So firstly, you're saying that Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is an organisation we hear slightly less about over here in the UK when we're talking about this, are you saying that has more of a role to play in the atrocities on October the 7th? Or were those atrocities mainly completely Hamas? Where was the responsibility lying?
1: Uh, No, this was very much uh, Hamas's responsibility. And it was a great shock because Hamas had stayed relatively quiet in, in recent years. And I think what it really brought back, the sense that, I mean, the impression Israelis were left with was our existential threat right next door is back in play. Hamas has always been a bogeyman and rightfully so for Israel. And in you know previous years, there's been... Directly responsible for for the worst violence to come out of the strip. Uh, and Islamic jihad has been something of a, a a spin-off, you know, a threat, but but a but a minor one. So, no, this is this episode is remarkable because it is Hamas. And most importantly, it is the most violent, uh, murderous campaign unleashed by Hamas against Israel in the organization's history.
0: And so you're saying that. From Israel's perspective, you're saying that Gaza had seemed relatively manageable, and the issues that people were concentrating on were towards the Lebanon border and in the West Bank. Over here we'd had reports of escalating aggression in the holy sites against Muslims and Christians and a more aggressive settlers' policy that seemed to be supported by the government. Is that the perspective that you have there on the ground?
1: It certainly was, but I mean, I think the the strange thing, for a journalist on Saturday, was all these background issues, which were very important. You mentioned, you know, the persecution of Christians, you know, the, the violence in the West Bank, settler violence, all these things hugely concerning. They're now on the back burner. In 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 a matter of hours, Hamas managed to completely preoccupy the media and and Israel. And that in itself, I mean it's understandable, but it has devastating consequences for these issues and the people affected by them, who now have no spotlight. The long-term issues facing Palestinians and Israelis remain. And it's important to remember that this also applies for Israel's domestic turmoil. When I arrived, I was parachuted in immediately to the debate around judicial reform and the effect that Israel's most right-wing government in history was having on the country huge social political divisions with economic costs and religious demographics seismic changes that now will not be spoken about in great detail for some time and that is a scale really of the dramatic situation that that we're in today
0: i'm speaking to tom helm jerusalem correspondent at the national newspaper based in abu dhabi and i'm speaking to tom from jerusalem tom Obviously, what happened on October the 7th is one of those world changing events. And I don't think it's too much to say that. What's the situation like now in Gaza following that? We're seeing reports on our screens here in the UK. But what are you seeing? What are you hearing? Well, the
1: truth is I'm, I'm hearing and seeing very much what you are, because foreign journalists at least can't go into Gaza and there's no prospect of them being there in the immediate future. We're getting all of our reports from from journalists that were already in Gaza at the time, who are mostly from the Strip, and the situation's dire. I mean, many of the journalists have died, but I think the number is now 2,600 Gazans, and that will climb dramatically. Israel hasn't even launched its widely anticipated ground invasion, which has truly dramatic targets. The government is talking in... Old Testament-like terms about the need to totally destroy any remnant of Hamas and never allow it to flourish again. And this is in a in a densely populated urban environment with people who have nothing to lose often. This is going to be an extremely difficult but most important of all bloody mission.
0: There are... All- likenesses and analogies being drawn between annihilating ISIS in Mosul and ridding Gaza of Hamas. To what extent do you think those analogies hold? I think they're interesting. In the early days, in the early hours
1: of the conflict even, people were trying to get a scale in Israel about the threat that Hamas now posed. One of the early lines was to equate uh, the violence Hamas showed on a Saturday. parallel with ISIS. There have since actually been statements from, for example, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying in many ways the violence was worse. I think this is an extremely sensitive subject. I think, unlike ISIS, which drew on significant support from jihadists from across the world, this is very much a localised group that emerged from an extremely difficult context, but which by no means is blameless in the slightest. They rule Gaza with an iron fist, protests and dissent are quickly quashed and Gazans suffer as a result. And Hamas obviously regularly spouts anti-Semitic, murderous uh, rhetoric, against Israel. But I don't think the analogy quite stacks up for very complicated reasons. But we do not need to describe Hamas as ISIS to get a sense of how brutally and appallingly they behaved then and yeah. the threat that they've always posed to Israel.
0: You're based in Jerusalem and you're spending time in the West Bank. Whilst we're all concentrating on the horrors that have emerged from Gaza and are now in Gaza... What's going on on the West Bank? We're hearing less about that. What are you seeing? Well, I've been
1: thinking about this a great deal recently. I think the early days of the conflict, they were simple. They were binary. Hamas had committed terrible atrocities and Israelis were rallying around in the most astonishing fashion. And it was easy to report. The stories were there. On Sunday, I did my first trip into the West Bank since the fighting happened. And it was perhaps the saddest day of reporting I've done since the war began because the conflict was no longer simple. You realize that the underlying issues around the conflict are not on hold by any means. They are in fact worsened by this war. I covered two stories. One was reporting from a recreational center in Ramallah the Palestinian capital, where Gazan workers, who at the time were legally working in Israel, mostly as farm hands, manual labor, construction workers, uh, were unable after the war broke out to return to Gaza. So Israeli authorities rounded them up and uh, dumped them at the borders of the West Bank, leaving the Palestinian Authority and West Bank Palestinians to look after them. And we went to this center And I have actually never had the chance to go into Gaza. I haven't really been here long enough. But it was a mini Gaza. You immediately saw people that were visibly poorer. Their clothes were were dirtier. they, They looked more traumatized than the average West Banker. So we essentially had a mini Gaza, and the Palestinian Authority, which already faces huge challenges, was having to look after them. The scene resembled a natural disaster. Men were sleeping side by side in a massive open hall. Many were injured. We spoke to a young man who had been very badly beaten by Israeli authorities. He was limping. He had a bruised face. We spoke to another man who had learned that his son was killed in Gaza the day before. And these men have no idea when they can go back and be with their families. And it's a mess. There's no answers. The the second story was, again, a continuation of issues that were very present beforehand. We were going to a Bedouin community that had recently been displaced by violent settlers around the Palestinian city of Taibo. Now, this the UN in particular has been taking a keen interest in this, particularly since 2022. The issue of uh, settler violence displacing particularly um, animal herding communities, which tend to be Bedouin in the West Bank. And the process had accelerated rapidly in 2023. And the thesis now of these UN officials is that in this week, it's it's accelerated even more. I, I spoke to one uh, NGO worker who works closely with the UN who said that 400 people she believes have been displaced, permanently displaced from their terrain just this week alone and the problem now is that as this as this issue accelerates the eyes of the world are firmly in gaza and the south of israel there were no journalists there we were the first journalists to reach it the the diplomats from western countries and organizations like the un were no longer coming because the situation was viewed as as too volatile and Quite frankly, I think the appetite to show the same degree of solidarity with the Palestinians, which in itself was pretty empty anyway beforehand, is just not there. Western governments are rallying behind Israel. And a family of Bedouin shepherds who've been grazing the land for 50 years uh, is not something that will be picked up on. But the problem is, is once these people leave, they leave forever and the settlement project which has caused so much bitterness among the Palestinians rightfully so and makes the future of a Palestinian state impossible along the lines of the two-state solution which most western countries still back most of the international community still backs these are all impossibilities it's a situation that is deteriorating rapidly and we don't even know that it's happening but it will and that was only in one week Uh, We can only imagine what happens in the months ahead, because this conflict, which will distract so much attention, will probably last for months.
0: So you've got a situation where Hamas has not only brutalised Israel, but has really raised to the ground hopes for Palestinians for a two-state solution and a peaceful political solution. What's the atmosphere and the view of Hamas and their actions amongst West Bank of Palestinians that you're talking to? It's always hard to truly gauge that
1: because it's not easy as a Palestinian to come out against a group like Hamas. But I would say there is a sense now, whether it's in East Jerusalem or elsewhere, that this is our last last chance. And we have been driven to what they would term as violent resistance. It's a problematic term when you look at what happened in the kibbutzes and the areas around southern Israel. Uh, It was brutality to many. But I think this is not so much a political feeling among Palestinians. It is pure anger and rage of a demoralized society that for so long has not believed in or seen a viable political process. It's important to remember it's a line that's often trotted out Many of the Palestinians that are alive today have never known the existence of a uh, peace process. People in halls of power internationally tend to remember the Oslo Accords, but that is a reality that's totally dead and non-existent for many of the Palestinians now. So I think this is not a moment of great organization, of great hope by any means, It's, it's a vent. And I think you can see that, to be honest, reflected in the discourse in Western countries as well. You only have to go onto Twitter to see in a matter of seconds how videos showing appalling scenes are played differently to different audiences. I mean, if if I may, there was one video that particularly depressed me that emerged in recent days. It showed Hamas fighters cradling Israeli babies from the kibbutzes that, that they raided. Uh, I actually saw many people, many large groups on Instagram, saying that this was an example of Hamas benevolence and tolerance and humanity, that they weren't killing these babies. It was around the time that Israel that 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 a a sort of very contentious story emerged from Israel, based around a claim that forty babies had been beheaded by Hamas. But obviously, Israelis and other people saw that video and thought, wait, you're kidnapping babies. You might be doing that uh, in a non-violent manner, but these children are going to Gaza and they are being forced to go to Gaza and their parents might well have been killed. So it's it's one of those moments when I feel quite grateful that I'm wrapped up in, in the day-to-day reporting Travelling, going onto the ground. I don't have to see this footage the whole time. Instead, I leave that to news editors elsewhere and, and people who aren't able to be here. But it's, I mean, looking at differing narratives like that makes you think this is going to be such a hard narrative to square, such a hard conflict to make any sense of.
0: I'm speaking to Tom Helm, the Jerusalem correspondent at the national newspaper, which is based in Abu Dhabi. And I'm speaking to Tom from Jerusalem. Tom, what do you see as the end game for the Israeli policy for strikes on Gaza?
1: The end game can only be an extreme military response. The government and opposition figures and large swathes of Israeli society immediately declared that the response had to be the total annihilation of Hamas. And that is an understandable objective in the rage that followed the awful scenes we saw. But on a military level, and on an ideological level, it is extremely
0: complicated. I'm I'm guessing that whilst there are Hamas operatives on the ground in Gaza, I'm guessing that the organisers and the funders and the things that make Hamas possible are not in Gaza. They're probably in Doha and other places. So to what extent we're going for the foot soldiers, if you like, if that is what's happening, to what extent can that be effective?
1: I suppose in the short to medium term it can. It's, it, there There is a great deal of sense uh, in targeting Hamas. It, it's not a, you know, unlike ISIS that emerged out of nowhere almost, this is a very sophisticated operation with very sophisticated inf- sophisticated infrastructure that can be hit. Therefore, it's the complex threat it poses can be dismantled. But as you say, this is an ideology as well. And what we've seen recently, particularly in the West Bank in the past few years, groups like Lion's Den, which emerged in Nablus, this was not Hamas or the traditional militant Palestinian groups. They were not centralized. They were not that organized. They were essentially desperate angry, violent young men taking knives, guns and committing themselves to martyrdom and attacks on Israelis. So I think the, there is sense in targeting Hamas for Israel. But as is so often the case here, security ultimately boils down to ideas and Palestinian rage. And I think Palestinians will be getting a great deal of hope from the solidarity that they see across the world and, and the Arab world. And um in a very separate sense, so will the far more nefarious and strategic players such as Iran, Hezbollah, who let's, you know, let's be perfectly clear, there is still a there is a chance that they can get involved. It's quite possible. Israel and and Hezbollah are in, involved of something of a That they are engaged in clashes at the moment. I think it's fair to say that Lebanon and Hezbollah, which are obviously very separate, but if Hezbollah started a war and it has huge political power in Lebanon, Lebanon would be devastated. So there's a great deal of interest internationally, diplomatically, in, in stopping that from happening. But this is a mess and anything could happen.
0: And finally, Tom, this appalling terror attack by Hamas on October the 7th happened against the context, as you've mentioned, of quite a divided Israeli society and controversy over the government. What are you picking up from Israelis about how they feel about their government and how they feel about their own security now?
1: Well, it's true that I haven't heard the phrase judicial reform once since the conflict started. And I haven't heard from figures like far right, uh, National Security Minister Itamar ben But there are certainly families of those that were taken hostage and security experts that lay the blame squarely at the feet of the government. And these are the same people that have been blaming, particularly Benjamin Netanyahu, for Israel's social collapse in many senses. So I think people will always rally around the flag, but that flag has never been more contested. And I don't think there's any doubt that Israelis will always prioritize the security of their people, but whether this papers over the vast, I would say, unsurmountable divisions in Israeli society remains to be seen, and, and I highly doubt that will be the case. We'll see. We'll see more evidence that as, of, of that as the months go ahead. But you know, I'm, I'm by no means seeing people who were so opposed to Benjamin Netanyahu beforehand suddenly thinking he was a. Uh, a, an upstanding politician, not in the slightest. They're just distracted. They're focused on on military and security goals.
0: And to finish off, I'm going to come back to something right at the very beginning that you said that was interesting. You said that in recent days before the attack, there had been some policies towards Gaza that were relatively benevolent, um, enabling Gazans to come and work in the West Bank, as you, you illustrated, I guess there is a lot of criticism of Israel that the policy of what people call the biggest open air prison and what some call policies that relate to what was going on in South Africa has created this situation. However, you've just told us that a liberalization of Gazans moving into the West Bank preceded this attack. What's the mood of Israelis? Is there a lesson? What's Israel supposed to do if it liberates and lets Gazans come into the West Bank, if it liberates the grip a little? It seems that bad stuff happens. If it grips harder, it seems that bad stuff happens. What's the mood on the ground as to what Israel should do with Gaza?
1: An overwhelmingly hawkish response. I have spoken to, for example, the brother of, of an Israeli that was killed in the attack, who is saying that his brother's death was the result of an inability to find peace and an unwillingness on the Israeli side to find peace. But those voices are, are few and far between. I I think the 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 lines that we've heard for so long that justify Israel's approach to Gaza um have only been amplified. I was in Sterot today, and we spoke to a woman, uh, as as the rockets were falling, quite frankly, who became more and more enraged as the conversation went on, saying we tried our best, we gave them money, we allowed the Europeans, we allowed the Americans, we allowed the Qataris to give them money. All that happens is that coffers of, as she said, terrorists are filled. So there's going to be no soul-searching here. It will reinforce the very hawkish, very blunt approach that Israel has applied to Gaza for so long.
0: Tom, thank you. There's so much to talk about here, but I think hopefully we'll be able to speak to you again if you have time and you can give us an update. And perhaps next time we can talk about some of the wider ramifications of the conflict on the countries around Israel, Palestine and Gaza. So I've been speaking to Thomas Helm, the Jerusalem correspondent at the National Newspaper based in Abu Dhabi, and Tom is based in Jerusalem. Tom, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you, Charlotte.